0: Underneath the streets and towers of Toronto's financial district is a 30-kilometer mega-mall. A web of tunnels full of every type of store you might need. It's called The Path. There are drugstores, tailors, liquor stores, and fresh groceries. There are multiple food courts full of every kind of fast food you can think of, and some fine dining. It employs over 4,000 people. It connects businesses to transit, transit to downtown condos. It's possible to live for days in The Path and never go outside to become, as a piece about the path in the Chicago Tribune put it, mole people. This sort of thing isn't unique to Toronto. Montreal, Calgary and Winnipeg all have similar systems, bringing the sidewalk indoors to provide weather-free convenience for thousands of downtown office workers and shoppers. And they're now all dealing with the same question. What happens if those office workers, the primary reason for their existence, up and vanish? In Toronto, the path began with the Timothy Eaton's Company when it built a tunnel connecting two of its businesses for shoppers in 1900. One tunnel became five. In 1927, when Union Station opened, another tunnel was built to connect it to the Royal York Hotel across the street. As the financial district blossomed in the 60s and 70s, with huge office complexes like Mee's Van der Rohe's iconic TD Center, more tunnels were built to connect the many towers and the businesses they held and provide multiple alternatives to the narrow sidewalks above. The city began encouraging new buildings to add connections to the existing tunnels. It grew and grew and continues to expand to this day. It's fascinating, but it's no utopia. For one, it's private property and enforced by various private security companies who will often shove off anyone they think doesn't belong, particularly the homeless. There is a constant and ongoing battle to improve wayfinding so people don't get lost in a place with no visible landmarks and often confusing layout. And it's always given some urban thinkers concern. They've worried for years about the implications of bringing the sidewalk ballet indoors. But the path is here. In many ways, it's a marvel. And until the pandemic, it was thriving. Now, with many people working from home, we need to start thinking about what to do with this giant, empty, subterranean city. This is Spacing Radio. broadcasting from snowy moss park i'm glenn bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of spacing magazine coming up on the show spacing senior editor john lawrence explains the new inclusionary zoning policy passed at city hall and what it means for the housing and affordability crisis in toronto and we have a preview of our upcoming souvenirs of toronto sport book with a conversation about the history of skiing in toronto with canadian ski hall of fame director ian wolf but first Globe and Mail urban affairs reporter Oliver Moore tells us how the path is struggling in an era where many people are still working from home. Stand by. Oliver, uh, on October 18th in the Globe and Mail, you, you wrote a piece called Toronto's Path System Faces Crisis as Companies Announce Permanent Hybrid Work Arrangements. First of all, I, I think most of our Toronto listeners will know what the path is, you know, underground mall system, to, to put it simply. But uh, in happier pre-COVID times, what was the sort of vibe of the, the path? What, what could you see the sort of businesses and foot traffic?
1: Before the pandemic, your main sense of it was was crush. I mean, there's a term, a verb, to, you know, salmoning, to move against the flow. And if you were trying to walk south through the path towards Union Station at you know 8.30 in the morning, you could barely make any headway because enormous numbers of people would be walking through. And so you had this great crush north through the path in the morning, south through the path in the late afternoon. But also through the day, you had office workers popping down, you know, for lunch to pick up dry cleaning, to meet friends for a drink, whatever it was. And so there was, a, there was a lot of traffic in the path then, a lot of foot traffic. And now it's, I did this story with a, with a fellow colleague and we individually spent time down the path in the, in the pursuit of the story. And it's a bit eerie. I mean, it's not zombie apocalypse quiet, but it's pretty quiet. I mean, there are times where you kind of look one way and look the other way in the tunnel that you happen to be standing in and there's just no one else there. Uh, and you know, you don't get that for very long, but there are moments of, solitude in the path which i i would never have experienced before the pandemic
0: and the pandemic has hurt all kinds of businesses all over the city all over every city but uh, i mean the path is unique in the way that it has a very special symbiotic relationship with the financial towers that are directly above it
1: yeah that's quite right i mean you're, you're entirely correct that small business retail you know the commercial high streets everyone's been hurt badly by this but the path you're right it's it's different i mean you had that transit ridership which isn't there anymore. And why is the transit ridership not there? Because the office towers aren't full of workers. And you had a long period of the pandemic where people weren't particularly comfortable being inside. And the path by nature is, you know, it's a string of tunnels. Um, and even now to the extent that office workers are coming back and the numbers are still quite small, you know, in some cases companies are discouraging people from leaving the office during the day, either through policy or just, you know, it, it's inconvenient to do so. And so that pop down to grab something for lunch crowd. Even among the, the limited number of office workers who are back, there's going to be less of that business. You know, even from an elevator point of view, if you want to leave, you know, say you're at RBC Plaza and you want to go down, there's, you know, capacity limits on the elevators. And so you may have to wait to do so, which you know, all these little frictions that make it less convenient to go the path make people less likely to go on top of the fact that you know, there is a smaller customer base in the first place.
0: Right, and no one has a crystal ball. People are debating whether we'll we'll see a return to business as usual when or if this pandemic is over. But certainly, the the time frame is no one's even thinking about it for another year to get back to so called business as usual.
1: It's hard to know even what business as usual was going to look like. I mean, if it gets to a situation where your average office worker on Bay Street is in the office three to four days a week and working at home the remainder, that's a lot more than now. But that still means that. On any given day, you've got 60 to 80% of the potential customer base you had before the pandemic, which is a pretty huge drop to think of uh, from a business point of view in the path. And even that is a long way off. I mean, the more recent numbers I saw when I did that article was that the go passengers to the Union Station was about 16% of pre-pandemic normal, and TDC passengers was about 30%. Now, not every single person in the path goes to Union Station, but it gives you an idea of how far away this is from normal. On the flip side, there is some optimism down there. I mean, back in January of this year, First Canadian Place put on a parking promotion. They said, you know, you could park for free for three hours as long as you spent, I think it was $50 at the local retailers. Uh, that's not happening anymore. That promotion is done. So th- there must be some level of confidence that, I don't know, a corner has been turned or a, a ray of sunshine in the future. I mean, th- th- there must be some feeling that it's getting a little bit, be- little bit better, but that feeling is not translating, at least in my experience, to really noticeably bigger crowds in the, in the path.
0: So you were talking to uh, business owners who largely rent from the landlords there. Uh, w- what are they telling you, and, and what's happening with the, with you know the rent situation? How are they surviving, or are they?
1: Well, there's a lot of space, vacancies down there, and it, one thing that's tricky and it's tough always as a reporter to to, to look at anecdote. You want, you know, of course, you want data, but nobody tracks or nobody acknowledges tracking overall uh, turnover down the path. The local BIA says they don't. And then the individual spaces beneath the buildings are actually owned by the different buildings. So there's not one organization, one body that tracks the path as a whole. Uh, so it's hard to compare this year to last year to three years ago. But it does feel when you're walking through, through that there are quite a number of businesses that are, you know, papered over, you know, euphemisms like exciting leasing opportunity here kind of thing on the wall. Mm-hmm. The ones that are there, I mean, some have some have tapped the the federal programs, the provincial assists. And others are simply struggling. I mean, I talked to one guy who said, I think it was that if I, you know, if I get 15 sales in a day, that's a good day. This was at a a a tea company, you know, he was near RBC Plaza, very close to Union Station. He he kind of spoke wistfully about, you know, the crowds that he'd heard had been there. That place opened during the pandemic, which is a interesting business decision, and I have to say I applaud their optimism. But you know, he he was he was looking back to what he'd heard it had been like, and he was like, man, I'd love to have crowds like that for even one day.
0: As a little aside, long-time listeners will remember uh, that you were on the uh, the episode where we discussed another underground shopping plaza uh, in Winnipeg, uh, which contradictorily is called the Skyway or Skywalk. But uh, preparing to talk to you about this, a lot of Canadian cities have some version of, of the PATH system. But uh notably, uh in Winnipeg, the only way that you could cross the street at Portage and Main, the largest intersection there, was to go down into this sort of underground mall system. When the pandemic struck that place, the city closed it down for a while. And uh, the only option to cross the street then became uh walking, you know, a-, a block north or a block south, whatever the case may be. I don't know if you were tracking that or maybe that's just something interesting to throw in there.
1: You know, I actually was not paying too close attention there. I didn't know that Winnipeg had closed that system. In fact, by coincidence, I was in Winnipeg a few weeks ago, and I was at Portage, Maine, and just because of my general instinct and habit, I ran across the street. So I didn't go down below And I don't know what its current situation is, but I do remember, you know, even before the pandemic, that was a fairly grim, maybe is the right word, retail environment.
0: Yeah, I'd say grim.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm not surprised that it really struggled once you, you know, if you started from that place, uh, and then you add a pandemic on top of it, I think it might have been a complete dead zone. And so I don't know. In the end, did the city close it because of safety concerns, like as specific pandemic safety concerns, or because it was so quiet that there was a sort of a corollary concern about it being deserted?
0: I mean, that that's a good concern, but it w- it was closed for uh um for COVID. It, it since opened up again. Uh, it, it was only closed for a couple of months at the height of uh, twenty twenty, but uh, yeah, I just thought I'd throw that in there, just as a throwback to uh. To our previous episode,
1: it is interesting though, because you're right. A lot of cities have something like this, and I knew someone who went to university at, at Carlton, and he said, you know, you could spend huge amounts of your winter just staying inside and moving from around by tunnel, you know, from place to place by tunnel. And you know, Calgary has its Skywalk system. I believe it's called. Sorry to your Calgary listeners, I forgot the name of it. And I think in a number of cases, these have, you know exist because of Toronto having a difficult winter. Um, and it's convenient if you work in, you know, an office tower on Bay Street, you can pop down to get something. You don't have to put on your coat. You don't have to put on your overshoes if you're wearing nice, nice shoes and so on. But also, of course, it just created extra retail space and extra de facto sidewalk space. I mean, Bay Street, as you know, is a very narrow sidewalk. And if every single person before the pandemic who was walking in the path was walking up on Bay Street, there just wouldn't be space for them. So, you know, it served a, a kind of a, an infrastructure purpose. But again, it's really, it's a mall. And so if the mall, the value of it as a mall disappears, it's hard to know what kind of a future it has. And this is something we really tried to wrestle with in the article is, you know, what is the reason for the path at this point? And it's hard to know that it has a reason to exist.
0: Like you said, it does serve a purpose, escaping winter being one of them and narrow sidewalks for pedestrians another. And it does have its its fans. Some people love the path. There has always been a critique of the path and, and similar systems across Canada that it sort of sucks the energy off of the actual street space. And, you know, there's this critique of burying pedestrians and burying retail. And we may be actually, you know, this this may be the time when we have to pay the piper, although who could predict something like this. But on the other hand, you, you were talking to uh, someone who thinks a lot about the path and, uh, you know about a way forward. Um, what other things could the path be? I'm, I'm thinking specifically of uh, U of T architecture professor Laura Miller. So you you talk to her about hey maybe maybe this is a chance an opportunity to sort of re envision uh, this whole system what it could be. the enormous number of people have
1: have started to live within a relatively short radius of the path. People who weren't there you know, in buildings that weren't there ten or twenty or even five years ago in some cases. And so that creates a different customer base other than the office towers, but it's a customer base the path isn't really geared towards right now. And so it's an interesting question of does the path evolve? Does it turn into a a version of itself? Ultimately, you know, the the hard infrastructure of the, the tunnels remains the same, but is it different kinds of shops? Instead of, you know, a shopper's drug mart, a liquor store, a nail salon, a dry cleaners, and then you walk five minutes and it's the same sort of selection again i mean in fact the professor she kind of made the joke of one of the reasons it's it can be so hard to navigate the path is that you keep coming across the same stores and you're not necessarily sure if it's is this the same shopper's drug mart i just walked past or is this a different shopper's drug mart um there's not a lot of variety in some cases in the path and it it might be really good both for the retail mix and also to make it more accessible sort of more useful to you know residents nearby is if that mix changes i don't know what the right stores would be and that's probably a matter of you know, evolution, but perhaps it needs to look for a different market or, or broaden its market. And, and and Professor Miller talked a certain amount about opening the path up to the street, you know, so sort of creating a dialogue between the upper level and the lower level, which doesn't really exist now. I mean, I think if you're not familiar with the path, and I, I would put myself in that category for years until the last few years I started to pay more attention to it, I had no idea where I was going in the path. And so I just didn't go down there because I, I had no confidence I was going to get where I was trying to go and I'd just end up in a jumble. And I suspect there's a lot of people like that. They're not familiar with it, so they avoid it. In part because it is this thing, it's set out, it's kind of set aside. It's, you know, you're up here on the sidewalk, it's very clear which way is south, which way is north, you know, there's CN Tower that direction, there's Old City Hall that direction, it's, you you could orient yourself very easily. If you're not familiar with the path, once you go down, you can't necessarily, and that's in part because it's so distinct. It's like, there's up and there's down, and there's not really a, you know, that, that dialogue between them.
0: It raises a broader question for me about the question or, or the challenges of over-engineering cities. The path started very simply with just, uh, they needed a tunnel between two different Eaton stores, you know, to cross the street. Like you said, winter, it's cold. But then it, at some point in, in the 60s and, and, and beyond, it became actual policy of the city. It became part of the, the city's planning. Uh, so the, this, this whole thing, it didn't really happen accidentally. It was very purposefully designed. It does raise questions of, is it possible to over-engineer a city? And what happens if this one purpose that you build it for no longer serves that function?
1: And what happens if you, you know, that old joke about fighting the last war, what if you design it for a city that doesn't exist anymore or that won't exist 10 or 20 or 30 years from now? I mean, obviously, you know, very few people among us would have predicted the pandemic, but many people have been predicting downtown and densification, greater walkability, greater need for walkability. And so... You know, there's a part of me that wonders, and I haven't looked back at the history of this, but there's a part of me that wonders if the path partly came into existence because of a an era in the city building, which was get the pedestrians out of the way and you know, down the streets are for cars, because if you wanted to create that much space on surface level for that number of pedestrians, you'd probably have to widen the sidewalks and bay, and that you know, that's a policy decision, which you know, there's winners and losers to that, and so perhaps it was that mid-century idea of what is a city and how a city works was oh, we're gonna we're gonna avoid that situation. You know, we're not gonna bother writing the sides. We'll just stick them underground. That may not be a long term solution, uh, and maybe that's already something which, when you think of the city you want to be, we might already be starting to see the end of that attitude.
0: And uh, another thing that I think about thinking of the future of what the path could become, and I, I think Professor Miller alluded to this, is uh, a, a lot of cities are now, uh, even before the pandemic, we're we're thinking about maybe it's not a great idea to have you know, these districts which are purely financial or purely this, purely that, it is growing, but the, not too long ago, there almost no one lived in the sort of area that we'd know as the financial district. Now, some condos are popping up here and there, but uh, it, it makes me wonder if, if the future of the path is also tied into the future of mixed office space residential kind of thing in the downtown, not, not just having this specific siloed place of business that people commute to and from.
1: Yeah, it's interesting point because I think Torontoans often pat themselves in the back, you know, to some extent, rightfully that the city didn't didn't empty out, that people continued to live in downtown Toronto all through the the twentieth century, and I think the city is better for that history. But that ignores that yeah, there are certain areas which were very much from a policy point of view given over towards for for office or for employment, and there's in some cases good historical reasons for that. In some cases, there's not great historical reasons for that. But the end result is, yeah, you've got this, this central business district, which for most of its history was a real dead zone as soon as the sun went down and the office workers left. And, you know, I think you you actually have already started to see the change. I mean, we haven't gone, I think, to the point you're making of, you know, residential office, mixed use conversions, that sort of thing. But I understand and, you know, I'm like many Trondons. I don't spend any time in the financial district on Saturday, really. Yeah. But My understanding for people who are in the area is that, you know, a place like, you know, Cactus Club or something like that is actually packed on a Saturday night because it's people living in South Core, it's people in the towers, it's people on King West who end up in a place like that. I remember a few years ago, I was in the financial district on a Saturday and I bumped into some tourists who asked me directions to a restaurant. And I, kind of, I think, in fact, it was Cactus Club, but I sent them on their way thinking, God, they're going to go there. The place is going to be deserted. But now I think you know, maybe this shift was happening under my nose and I hadn't actually seen
2: it yet.
0: Well, Oliver, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Now, Toronto City Council recently passed an inclusionary zoning policy. It's something that's been talked about in various ways for years. It's meant to ensure that a certain number of affordable housing units are included in new developments. Will it work as intended? And make a dent in the housing affordability crisis. Spacing senior editor John Lawrence unpacks the new policy.
3: So the concept of inclusionary zoning has to do with a sort of a quid pro quo in the uh, in the development approvals process that developers would get, you know, more density be allowed to build higher buildings. And in exchange for that, they would have to set aside a certain number of units within those buildings as affordable units. And affordability is defined in many ways. In Toronto, we define it as 80% of average market rents. In other cities, it's calculated in different ways. But the basic principle is that the city gives something, which is the right to build more, and the developers have to get give something back, which is um, some affordable
0: housing. Listeners are probably familiar with the concept of a Section Thirty Seven agreement. Uh, we, we have these kind of uh, agreements uh, for all kinds of uh, amenities, you know, local cash and lieu that kind of thing. Uh, and and this time, it's you're saying, all right, you can you can build your big condo building, but uh, some of it has to be affordable.
3: Yeah, and so this is more directed than Section Thirty Seven. This is it's a requirement. Um, it doesn't apply in every part of the city, but it would apply in you know in designated zones. And unlike Section 37 or other kinds of bonusing, it has to go towards the housing as opposed to, you know, with Section 37, it can go towards parks, it can go towards beautification schemes and, you know, a bunch of different things. So this is explicitly a measure to improve the amount of moderately priced housing in the city.
0: Right. I mean, you you mentioned that the city has its own formula for what they call affordable. I've learned to... You know, raise my eyebrows when I hear the word "affordable" because it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. In in your piece about IZ and spacing, uh, you mentioned that it's that's still kind of a big number for a lot of people. It's not deeply affordable. It's uh, sort of middle of the road, still out of the reach of a lot of people.
3: Yeah, it's not deeply affordable, and uh, there are two points. Uh, one is that the proportion of units that are sort of to be set aside for. You know, in inclusionary zoning areas is pretty modest for the city of Toronto um, compared to other places. And that, that, you know, that formula for what describes affordability is also problematic. This has been pointed out in many places. The city uses 80% of average market rents, but if the average market rents are $2,000, which they are in Toronto, 80% of that is $1,600. And that is quite a lot of money for. You know, somebody who's, whose income is at the median level in the city, um, which is to same most people. So it's not a silver bullet in terms of housing affordability.
0: But so as as you say in the piece, uh, the alternative is just whatever the market will bear. And, and that's a lot of money in, in a city like Toronto or Vancouver, most major cities, I imagine.
3: I think the thing that we could say that's positive about um, inclusionary zoning is that it is a way for it, the city to capture some value on development in very desirable areas, which is to say, along transit corridors. So most of the inclusionary zoning will happen around transit stations. And transit stations are catnip for developers. I mean, mm-hmm. you could sell condos very easily around rapid transit stations. You can you know, you can really price them quite aggressively. And the reason you can do that as a developer is because the public sector and therefore the taxpayer has invested you know all this money in building rapid transit and so it seems reasonable to to sort of bring some of that back into the public realm by requiring these developers to you know to set aside a certain number of units as affordable
0: keeping the uh the iz sort of zones in uh, around major transit hubs that that's a provincial policy that that the city really doesn't have much control over
3: i think that there was some negotiated uh, arrangement there mm-hmm there's this long rollout, which will take years and years. And it seems like most of the new development is going to be directed around these transit hubs. And so I think that the city and the province sort of agreed that these two policies could be kind of layered on top of one another. Mm -hmm.
0: So yeah, you say it's not a silver bullet, but in a housing crisis, uh, I imagine it's the kind of thing where like every little piece goes to, to serve the big picture of, Making some kind of dent in, in affordability in this city, but there is a kind of there are a lot of people that are very alarmed by this. Uh, specifically, they're worried that uh, inclusionary zoning will actually fuel and embolden the sort of nimbys. Uh, I know that's a controversial word for uh, for some, but uh, people who basically they they don't necessarily want to see certain kinds of developments or certain kinds of density or uh, you know certain kind of tenure <laughs> tenants. And so, I was wondering if you could explain. You know, what What people are concerned with, if this sounds like a great idea, what is this other um, this sort of scary side where this could actually lead to less affordable housing?
3: So there's a relatively untested approach, um, you know, certainly recently, which is to have buildings that have sort of mixed tenure. You know, in the seventies and eighties, this was a more common idea with uh, mixed-income housing co-ops. But now, individual buildings are more sort of monocultures in terms of the classes that they serve. So, you know, right away you have the set aside of ten percent or whatever of units that will be geared towards people who have less, you know, less money and less to invest in a in a, an apartment. So that, from a ratepayer's association's point of view, that might be alarming. The thing to remember about this particular initiative is that because these are going into the these areas around rapid transit stations as per provincial policy, the protection of this policy is sturdier than if it was just a city, if it was only a city policy. so, The other point to remember is that unlike house neighborhoods where there are people living, you know, in new condos, there's nobody, it's just a column of air um, Mm -hmm. at the point when it's being sold. So so there isn't an incumbent NIMBY force in that, in a particular building. That being said, I think that there you know, there are other ways that this policy could be undermined. And there's certainly ways that the city could have tried to push a little bit harder on the development industry and get... Sort of more concessions in order to produce more of the kind of housing that is needed in the city. There will always be an I mean, We live in this world of extreme NIMBYism, but you know there are lots of changes afoot in the uh, in the planning world at the moment. And um, my feeling is, is the residents' associations have their going to have their hands full with you know other issues. Um, you know, or some of them have been fighting high-rise buildings generally, and that won't change. Regardless of who's living in
0: them, speaking to ways that uh, developers or whoever could get around this, you do mention that it's not really clear how the city will ensure that these units remain affordable. Um, there, there's no guarantees or you know length of of time that they must be affordable for. And you you do write about uh, your concern that people could probably figure out a way to flip these.
3: Yeah. So the the best model is affordable units that are part of a purpose built, a, a rental apartment building. So, you know, as recently as five years ago, there wasn't much of a market for, for apartment buildings. Um, I mean, they were condo towers, but not purpose built apartment buildings. And that's changed a little bit. I mean, there's some, you know, there's more institutional investment money chasing after apartment building projects, but, those are the ones where you can actually guarantee a low rate for a hundred years because you have an agreement between the city and one property owner. You know, whereas in a condo building, you know, you have all of these units that are changing hands and changing hands again. And so it's easy to see how that initial affordability could dissipate even after, you
0: know, a few years. Mm -hmm. Well, to you, I mean, like you said, this, this will take years to really unfold to to you. What would be an early sign of health with this program?
3: So if the city was able to secure more uh, rental buildings, mm-hmm. um, so the city is, the city is, you know, through the housing now project is really promoting the development of purpose built rental apartment buildings in, on these city sites. Mm-hmm. So that would indicate that there's priming the pump. The city is priming the pump and, you know, they're big companies that build apartment buildings and, you know, are in that space at the moment. And so, if the city can kind of build on that momentum and make sure that more of the buildings that are going up around these transit sites that are going to be, are going to have inclusionary zoning designations are apartment buildings, then that will be a sign of health. The staff report that was approved to council had like a table of what's happened in other jurisdictions where there's been an inclusionary zoning. And you know, in some places the numbers are not really very impressive. Um, and these programs have been around for a lot longer than Toronto's, in some cases for well over a decade. And the reason is that if it's mostly condos, it's very hard to protect that affordability. Mm-hmm. If they're rentals, it's much easier.
0: Finally, Spacing is about to release a new book called Souvenirs of Toronto Sports. For this book, I wrote about the lost ski hills of Toronto. As it happens, Toronto is about to lose one of its remaining ski hills at Centennial Park. Ian Wolfe is an archivist and member of the board of directors for the Canadian Ski Hall of Fame and Museum. He tells us about the history of skiing in Toronto and his thoughts about the loss of one of the city's few remaining ski hills. So uh, as you know, at Spacing, we've been working on a book about uh, the, the history of different sports in, in Toronto. And I was tasked with uh, telling the story of uh, skiing. So I reached out to you. And uh, so I was hoping you could walk our listeners through uh, skiing in early Toronto, how, how the sport kind of landed and uh, developed. And, uh, and we'll talk about where it is today.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's an incredible, it's an incredible history. And it's, Somewhat unknown or somewhat hidden, uh, but it—it it certainly it was something that emerged in the uh, 1920s in the city of Toronto with the early members of the Toronto Ski Club. And back then, there just weren't any ski clubs. Called the, the notion of going up to Collingwood was something that <laughs> didn't occur to anybody for a number of reasons. But there was a group of adventurous, primarily young men. Uh, that decided that they they were fascinated early on by the kind of ski jumping, but it, that that later morphed into proper downhill skiing. They started to form clubs and try to find try to find places to ski. Uh, that was difficult enough, but also at the same time bring more people into it. So this emerging kind of social scene of these young adventurers. Trontonians, uh that were kind of desperate to get outside and do something. They were as creative as and innovative as you could possibly be in the 1920s, and they they found anywhere in the city that they could possibly ski a hill, any hill that had snow on it, and then they they formed get-togethers. And so the the skiing was the skiing was a big focus, but the the social aspect was a very big focus as well, and. A very very interesting time because this wasn't you know what this wasn't anything based on making a profit right it was all about it was all about getting outside and having friends together and meeting new friends so there was a lot of you know the this, the the was certainly a big part of it as well and that and that continued throughout the the twentieth century the the war years slowed things down for sure but then it it kind of had a rebirth. Or reemergence in the 1940s and 50s, uh, and that's kind of where we see the, you know, the really the roots of kind of our what we, what we know now in Ontario for uh, for skiing.
0: And, and right around that time, I mean, you have a personal connection uh, with the Alpine Ski Club with your your father Michael Wolf, a co-founder, and and uh, with Hans Kent.
2: It's yeah, you know, it's true, and it's that his story is really. Kind of reflective of a lot of the experiences and of, of what was going on there. So a lot of my my father was a brand new immigrant to Canada and he was he was looking for a way to looking for something to do on the weekend, living in a rooming house with three other guys and working at a factory during the week. He he was desperately trying to find new friends and, and something to do. So I was coming out of post-war London, coming to Canada <laughs> and deciding that he wanted to take up skiing, in fact, wasn't such an unusual story because all of the people that he met were very, very similar, uh, very similar stories. Many of them were new immigrants, primarily from from Europe. And same, same story as the 1920s. It started, the Alpine Ski Club started as a traveling ski club. And it was a group of 14 individuals, my dad, one of them. And uh, they decided that they would create a club That would just encourage the sport of skiing, and again, just like the 1920s, get people together, and it was a social club. And then it just, as time went on, into the early 1960s, with with a Highway 400 opening up and becoming more accessible, and land becoming available to them in Collingwood, uh, they decided to just buy a piece of land on the escarpment and start. You know, go up on weekends and start cutting down trees, and you know having giant bonfires, and and these these clubs just emerged. No vision of being what we see today uh, up on the escarpment of what are considered fairly exclusive clubs. It was it was just a way to get together and do something on the weekends. Uh, that was fun in the winter.
0: And that that movement that you speak of with the the highway system and the access to land. I mean that that would be the story for a lot of clubs in Toronto, a lot of ski clubs. But uh, before the mass exodus uh, and, and what we see today, there, there seemed to be a sort of a heyday in, I guess it'd be the 70s and 80s, where downhill skiing in the city proper seemed to be all the rage. I, I even saw an article in the in the Toronto Star when I was doing research for this story that seemed to be very concerned that uh, kids were skiing instead of uh, going to hockey practice, and what would that mean for for our national pastime? So. It seemed to be a big enough deal that uh, people are concerned it was giving hockey a run for its money
2: it's it's interesting right you can really you can really kind of track this uh, trajectory of the popularity of skiing over time uh, so maybe over a hundred years you can really track this and there's those moments where you can certainly identify where skiing reaches this uh, these these higher levels of popularity just like a, and as as you'd say for other snow sports as well, with cross-country skiing and snowboarding as well, very similar trajectories. What I would say to the time of popularity of skiing in Toronto, you know, it's it's entirely dependent on good winters, mm-hmm. snow. I mean, it really comes down to that as well. So not not uh, knowing the kind of the, the weather, uh, historical weather records of Toronto, but I suspect you could correlate that uh, popularity directly with a few years of heavy snowfall in the city of Toronto. And then similarly, uh, with those winters that we've all seen in Toronto where we've had, where you have next to no snow, the popularity completely, completely declines. Yeah, you know, it's that psychological thing where Many of us know that you know you are going to have you are going to have some great weekends up in Collingwood uh, with fewer people up there. As long as if it's warm and without snow in the city of Toronto, psychologically people just think there is no snow anywhere, uh, especially Torontonians.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I, I, you know, I being a Torontonian myself, uh, am <laughs> part of that. But uh, we all, we all know better now that. Uh, Collingwood's got a, always receives a pretty good uh allotment of snow.
0: I I was tasked with looking at uh, the lost ski venues in, in Toronto and and there there are a number of them and uh as near as I could tell from you and from other research I've done it it really was because of of snow or the lack thereof. And now we're we're at a place where there are currently two city run downhill ski hills, Centennial and Earl Bales. And, and just now, uh, there's a sort of new master plan for Centennial Park, and uh, they, they are phasing out the, the downhill ski and snowboard operations, uh, again, just citing a lack of, of consistent snow. So uh, I wonder, you know, is that a great loss, or is it just kind of acknowledging that, hey, this is a, for Canada, a southerly, southerly city in a sort of warm pocket, and um, it just it may be not meant to be?
2: Oh, yeah. I I mean, this is a, I think this is a huge disappointment for many people and, and, you know, a huge kind of disappointment for future skiers. The demise of Centennial Park certainly felt like a foregone conclusion. I'm just so disappointed in the city of Toronto and allowing a, allowing that facility to, to go downhill, no pun intended, (laughs) uh, with, you know, kind of bare bones, minimal maintenance, and I and I've read I've read some of the reports about this, and citing environmental concerns, and citing that the you know it was too difficult to maintain uh, or repair the existing chair lifts, and that snowmaking was a difficulty. These were these are all issues that could have easily been creatively addressed. And I say that so so for a chairlift, there, there's absolutely no no requirement for a chairlift at there. You could they have these what they call them uh, magic carpets, and they're essentially conveyor belts. And that's a equally efficient way to get people up a relatively small hill. Uh, snowmaking technology has changed dramatically from uh, the technology that they were using at Centennial Park. Uh, the the, the building itself was anybody that uh, went there would would be able to see that they they're just bare bones uh, maintenance on it. So I, I'm just I'm absolutely disappointed by the city of Toronto that they didn't really they had an opportunity to use a little have a bit of creative thinking about this and it, it, and they just didn't. They could have easily marketed this as a a beginner a place a place a low risk place for people in Toronto to start or to try to learn how to ski uh, as you know without without committing to going to Collingwood you could easily you could easily get yourself to Centennial Park rent the equipment for very little money and no commitment but the the city seems to be really missing a big opportunity here
0: and then, for an advocate for the sport such as yourself does does that make the future of Earl Bales that much more important? It's basically the the only the only game in town.
2: Yeah, it does. It does. And you know, I, I, I'm 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 happy <laughs> that they've made some commitment to Earl Bales. But it's you know the the advantages of both of them uh, were that you know Centennial Park would service kind of the West End of Toronto, Mississauga as well. They made it easy and accessible, and you know those two those two adjectives aren't typically associated with the sport of skiing, mm-hmm. but they you know in these instances they were, and they're great. And the uh, you know my my personal experience at Centennial Park was the quality of ski instruction for my for my three year old son when he was learning couldn't have been better, could not have been better. Uh, so they 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 had all of the pieces in place, but they just yeah. I'm okay with, I'm happy with that Earl Bale's remains, but I feel like we're really, you know, losing something valuable.
0: There are some uh, parks in in Toronto uh, where you're also, you are allowed to downhill ski. Do you recommend that people start there if if they're in the city? Maybe, as you say, not everyone can, can go out to Collingwood that easily or places like that. Are there parks within the city without a chairlift or this and that, but a place where you can kind of get the learn the ropes?
2: I wouldn't recommend it Mm -hmm. uh, for a few reasons. Uh, Instruction is always good. You know, proper use of the equipment is always good. Uh, Having somebody around is always good, too. I mean, it's something it's something that if you're learning, uh, you do want to have a little bit of a support system with you. So. I certainly wouldn't recommend it. Um, you know, at, like any sport, there's, there's a little bit of danger involved. And, you know, that's part of, the, part of the mystique, I guess. But no, I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't recommend the practice of just finding a hill uh, <laughs> somewhere as, as kind of a, you know, a romantic and a, as appealing as that sounds on one level. Uh, probably not the most advisable thing to do.
0: I wonder if we need a, a return of of the Toronto ski clubs to to provide that coaching in in local parks.
2: Well, you know, we do we do have clubs that still exist, traveling ski clubs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, High Park Ski Club is one of them that immediately comes to mind. That they they organize trips whether in Eastern U.S., New England. Uh, Mont Tremblant in Quebec, and and up and certainly up to Conewood as well. So the traveling ski clubs still do exist, which is which is a really interesting kind of remnant of the past, and it and it does give you hope because it's a, it does represent a, those exact same values that existed a hundred years ago.
0: Well, Ian, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Uh, it's great talking to you as well
0: and that is the show thanks so much for listening if you like this episode please tell your favorite subterranean businesses your housing advocates and skiing enthusiasts if you have a moment please share subscribe or give us a rating on itunes as it will help us reach new listeners I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at track 82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can reach us on Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-O-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca, visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. It's a great place to do your holiday shopping, or you can visit spacingstore.ca. In the meantime, enjoy the fresh gnar. Cheers.